Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking with Lauren C. Tafoe in New Mexico about her debut novel, Implanted. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series. Before I welcome Lauren on the show, I'd like to share my review of her novel, followed by a short reading. Emery, M for short, is a smart and dedicated college graduate. She anticipates a future in which she, and eventually her parents, can escape the lower strata of the domed city of New Worth. She hopes her upcoming career as a data curator, someone who pours over the copious electronic exchanges, which constantly overwrite the old, will make the sacrifice of her parents worthwhile. They saved their money to buy her an implant, a neurological link to the data network, so that she would be in an advantageous position. But just as she's about to move her virtual relationship with a man she knows as Rick to the next level, after meeting him in person, her life takes a twist. Emma has a secret life pursuing and punishing criminals who rip the valuable implants out and resell them. In a highly structured society, she's taken a law into her own hands, making her vulnerable to blackmail. Aventine, a pseudo-government company which specializes in safe data transfer through encoding the data in the blood of its couriers, wants her to work for them. They'll pay off her sizable school debt and keep her past activities tracking criminals secret. They promise exciting and fulfilling work. There's only one catch. She will be officially dead. To prevent friends from recognizing her, she'll be outfitted with safeguards, including a slightly altered physical appearance and a variety of false IDs. Although Em misses Rick and her friends and family, she tells herself they're better off without her. She soon becomes comfortable with her Aventine handler, Tahir, and gets to know some of the other couriers. But when a data drop turns dangerous and a man gets shot, Em doesn't know who to trust anymore. Could she turn to Rick for help? She's only met him once in person, and besides... He seems to be sympathetic to a radical contingent of disconnects who are calling the whole idea of implants into question. Fast-paced with a touch of romance, this cyberpunk novel explores trust and intimacy in a society based on electronic connections. So now that you know what it's about, I'd like to read you an excerpt. This part starts where M is lured to Aventine's secret office. She doesn't know what's awaiting her. She thinks that she's going to visit a police office, but she's been tricked. 
As I crossed the threshold, my implant snuffed out like a candle. Usually Rick and I keep our connection open but minimized, so he's always there, reassuringly, in the back of my mind. Any other day I'd be pinging Brita with a joke or something from the feeds, and vice versa. As I'm cut off from my implant's network-dependent functions, even passive features like calendar notifications, proximity alerts, and simple messaging are silenced. It's a complete mental amputation that immediately gives me a headache. The receptionist follows me into the room as I take a seat at the conference table. The sooner I know what they want from me, the better. Did I know about Breck? Or is this an exercise in formality? And just where is that detective that contacted me? The man from yesterday and his muscle-bound friend enter the room. I nearly leap out of my chair as my skittishness goes into overdrive. Uh, what the hell is this? The receptionist raises a hand for calm. Forgive me for underestimating you, Miss Driscoll. Normally, these conversations aren't quite so protracted. I take it you're no secretary. I glance over the room. And a message? This was all a scheme to get me alone. I should have cross-referenced the address with the network to ensure I was headed to the real specialist investigation department instead of this ambush. But how could I have known a message didn't come from the police in the first place? My stomach drops. Just who are these people? He gives me a self-satisfied smile as he takes a seat on the edge of the table. Please allow me to introduce myself. My name's Thomas Harding. He gestures to the first man from yesterday. You've already met my colleague, Tahir Ahmed, and this is Diego Martinez. You must mean a muscle. How nice. Can I leave now? I'm afraid not, Harding says. Diego adjusts his stance, ready for me if I try to bolt. I reluctantly settle into my seat. In fact, Harding continues, we're here to offer you a job with Aventine Security. Me? My petite stature is not particularly threatening, as I well know. There's no way I'd cut it as a security guard. Is this some kind of joke? He acts as though I didn't say anything. So you can be trained as a career. All this uh, so I can deliver packages and pizzas. Uh, no thanks. Harding spreads his hands, a placating gesture belied by the uncompromising cut of his gloves. Oh, nothing so commonplace, I assure you. You won't simply be carrying information on behalf of Aventine. You'll be carrying it inside you, in your bloodstream. A wave of nausea rises up. My hands clench, squeezing the seams out of my gloves as I force myself to keep breathing. He smiles, but nothing about it puts me at ease. You see, you carry a very rare trait in your DNA that allows you to hold encrypted data in your blood cells. Given the digital transparency laws, he lifts his shoulder in elegant gesture. We have a number of government and corporate clients who want a more secure way to transfer data than across the New Worth network. 
That's why we're only interested in the best of the best, so to speak. That's why we want you. And, of course, Emma's intrigued by that proposition as much as it frightens her. And the novel unfolds about her decision, joining them or not joining them. So now that you've read, heard a little bit, I'm going to go ahead and welcome Lauren onto the show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, Lauren, and welcome to our show today. So I've got a couple of questions for you about your first-time novel. Uh, Intimacy and the lack of it is a recurring theme. This is a world where people routinely wear gloves to protect their data receptors. And degrees of closeness depend on access to data. Can you tell us a little bit about being blank buddies and syncing and calibrating? Sure. So um, a lot of interactions can be accommodated by the neural implants that just about everybody who matters in this society has. Um, but there's a lot more uh, user-defined control than what we typically think, particularly in our current um, society where you know all our cell phones and computers and things have this kind of corporate top-down device control where um, they're more interested in um, controlling and segmenting eyeballs as opposed to um, what users actually want. So um, c- coming from it from that perspective, that means there's a lot of more tools to control abuse and unintended consequences of having somebody else up close and personal. As I say in one of the books, as I say in one of the lines in the book, um, you don't let somebody else into your mind with no safeguards in place. And so these these um, devices have a lot of fine-grained control to that extent. Um, and so signals have some basic information kind of embedded in them already. So And it depends on what the user wants to broadcast to the larger world. So somebody's name, maybe their occupation and gender, things like that. Um, but then, you know, for signals that somebody encounters on a regular basis, maybe that information gets stored in your history so that it, you can just recall that very rapidly. And then for maybe friends or work acquaintances that you interact with on a daily basis, you can kind of customize even more and have shortcuts and, um, you know, maybe, you know, communication preferences or um, styles and things that you kind of already kind of know. So you have like a mode set for that individual. And that's where, um, to make those interactions a little more seamless. And so that's where that concept of Blink Buddies comes in. People you interact with closely through sync chats, which is basically what I call the exchange of near-synchronous thought text. Um, so your thoughts are literally being um, exchanged uh, through these implants, uh, thanks to ICAST commands, which are rapid eye movements that correspond to, you know, control commands that you give your implant. So instead of, so that's where this kind of the terminology comes from. Um, and then for some relationships, whether they're platonic or romantic, uh, where individuals are very, very close, um, they can choose to calibrate. And that's where they pair the data receptors on their hands 
um, so that they can share more deeply each other's thoughts, feelings, and experiences, uh, which puts them so it's a it's a category above being a blink just a, an acquaintance or a blink buddy. It's a confidant and um, to kind of get at the just the range of uh, information and um, content that they're sharing and the closeness of that relationship. So people are wearing gloves to prevent inadvertent calibration, right? It's kind of like wearing That's correct. clothes to protect your naked body and you're wearing gloves to protect your naked mind. Yeah, so it's a very topical subject actually now with things that have been going on on Facebook and data being fed to us without really knowing the source. Oh, yes. I have lots of opinions about Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll move on if you don't care to air those opinions on this show. (laughs) Is Emory a guarded person or a trusting one? Um, I think me, I think she's a trusting one who's had to grow up in a very um, rough environment. So she's been taught from a young age to constantly be on her guard. So it's, um, I, I would say that it's not something that's an automatic behavior, but one that she learned that she has to constantly remind herself to, to pay attention and, and look out for trouble. Um, she does seem a little relieved when she starts her new career at Aventine her romance with Rick isn't going to progress. And she does miss him a lot, obviously, but she seems conflicted about that, whether she was really prepared to go ahead with the romance or not. Right. So I kind of wanted to, she's kind of on the threshold of two different things. One is her her relationship with Rick and whether or not they can, they've been, just interacting online, the equivalent of what's online for the for society, and whether or not they want to actually interact in, re, re, in interpersonally in, in in front of each other, you know, face to face kind of thing. And then she's given this opportunity um, for this career that kind of really appeals to her intellectual side, but it comes at this huge cost where she has to kind of uh, turn it back on her former life. And so I. Um, you know, it's it's scary going from one mode of communication with um, to another with this person at, at this level of intimacy, and so you know this this other thing happens with this career opportunity at a time where she's not sure if she wants to take that next big step. Um, there's a lot of positive advantages to doing that. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, disadvantages or um, the fallout. You know, potential fallout could be catastrophic. So um, she she tells herself that, um, you know, this career can make up for a lot of things and maybe maybe it's for the best. Um, but her heart is not necessarily convinced. <laughs> right. She seems to have a habit of secrecy, but there is definitely a part of her that wants to reach out and be close to someone, be close to Rick. Absolutely. Emma is one of the lucky ones who has an implant despite her family's lack of wealth. And in your book, Implant, the professional worth of an individual depends on your access to the implant. Those without an implant are deemed worthless. Is that why you chose the former city of Fort Worth as the place in which the story unfolds so you could speak about the worth of an individual? I mean, that's that's definitely part of it. Um, the other piece about it was um, new worth and network. 
um, there's just a lot of a lot of similar letters in there and sounds similar. So that was that was another kind of thing I was kind of playing with because I have to have fun a little bit here. And and then finally, also just the the Dallas Fort Worth region in the U.S. is um, kind of what's called the southern portion of what's called Tornado Alley. And there's a lot of speculation as to what like uh, you know the perfect storm could do to that region, uh, which kind of plays into the whole environmentalism and um, sustainability kind of issues that I was exploring also in this story. So it, you know I try to things that I include in my stories I try to hit at least two two things, and this is one of those things where you know there's a lot of nice Resonances. dimensions to that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. I used to live in Texas, and actually, environmental concerns about the there being enough water to sustain that level of population did play a role in our exit. So, yeah, <laughs> you got out while you could. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, New Earth is a stratified city, both figuratively and literally, as in the show Altered Carbon. The very rich live on the top, and in your book, that's called the echelon. M loves to be in the upper reaches. Is it just the idea of social advancement that appeals to her? I, you know, it's partly. I think. I think because you know the the whole society is kind of built on this this idea that you know the the people at the top have made it to a certain extent. So she's been taught by her parents that they need to find a way to ascend through society. And if you work hard and you find the right career path, then that's possible. Um, you know, that's what they've taught her and that's what the rest of the society tells her. Whether or not that's true, you know, there's probably arguments against that because there's just so many people um, and there's waiting lists and upward or downward mobility is, is harder to affect than that kind of simplistic take on things. But, you know, she's bought that, that's what she believes. And, um, you know, she's been able to, um, go to school in the upper levels and, and, ex- and see how the other half lives to a certain extent. And she knows that that's so much better than what, um, growing up in the lower levels has been like. So that, so she's very motivated to kind of get out and stay out. Um, but there's a, another piece to that. It's not just, you know, socioeconomics. It's also just because, um, She's also starved for sunlight. The uh, the way the city is, is um, you know, it's a dome city, right? So it's very constrained spatially, um, and the lower you get, the denser things are. Um, and so sunlight doesn't always make it all the way down. And so, um, you know, she's still a, a human creature who craves, you know, vitamin D and sunlight and all those kinds of things. So um, for the way the news... You know, New Earth is interesting in that, you know, it's not just, you know, being on top of things. It's what that level of access gets you and that more sunlight. That's exactly um, what struck me. Uh, there are a lot of descriptions of her walking around in various gardens and inhaling fresh air. So it's interesting to me that even though she's a data collector and that's what her life is about, there's another part of her that just is so happy when it's in a natural setting, which is available to those in the upper levels. Yep. Yep. No, I definitely kind of wanted to play with that idea that, you know, this is a society that's been under glass for, I think I say two generations at this point when the story starts. So they're only 
experience of the natural world is through these approximations and these in these um whether it's online or in the upper levels where they actually have space for gardens and things like that so um that was definitely something i I wanted to play with um you know in in humanity and what what is in in humanity at the same time kind of thing. Well, Anna's enjoying her career a lot at first, but then she has a data drop that goes wrong. She finds herself in a lot of danger. She doesn't know who to turn to, and she contacts, she contacts Rick for help. But she finds out he's a sympathizer to the radical disconnects. She's shocked to find out that people willingly give up their implants. Rick's comment to that is, it's not a weakness to want to separate mind from machine. Can you comment on the character of Rick and the perspective he lends to the novel? Sure. So in addition to having, you know, a romantic foil, um, I also wanted to kind of show that despite the enjoyment and utility Emery gets out of her implant, it's not a universal experience. Uh, there are some people who cannot use implants because of their brain uh, physiological physiology or you know chemistry issues and there are people who simply just don't believe in them whether it's a religious or philosophical um kind of perspective and then you know criminals who um do something bad enough that warrants getting their implants taken away um so there's there's a lot of ways that you know implants have made modern life in the society essential um but there's a lot of um costs associated with that that you don't always see and so Rick is somebody who is struggling with the information that the implants provide and the manner in which it does. And he's found it to be a disruptive experience. So he's been looking for other options um, and um, has, has been sympathetic to other people who've, who've, who found the implants don't work for them for whatever reasons. So he provides kind of a window into that other side of society. Um, and. You know, the events of the book kind of put these two sides of society on the intersect course. And, um, but because of this invisible class who are just simply tired of being discriminated against because they don't have the implants that everyone else does. And, and the, um, the ease and the, um, you know, some of the things that the society is built around, you know, if you don't have an implant, it's like, well, tough luck kind of thing. So they're they're fed up when the when the uh, book opens. So uh, M finds herself embroiled in a conspiracy. The disconnects are seem to be after something. The government things don't seem quite right there. And in order for the conspiracy to be undetected, the one that she's about to discover, the perpetrators are counting on the law of digital recency. I like that term. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, sure. So basically, it's this idea that when uh, information is immediately accessible via presumably your implant or for us, you know, an Internet connection, um, where what, what's the incentive to retain that in our brains when we can just look it up whenever we need to? And so if we're not retaining things because we have these, these uh, tools that do it for us, um, then, then there are probably going to be opportunities where we miss something, where we are either unwilling or unable to look look up that information. Um, and so, I kind of wanted to get at this idea of um, uh, 
the primacy of uh, digital information over even real life interactions where it is so, I don't want to say distracting, but in terms of just, it is so, um, it's like squirrel, you know, <laughs> look, you know, it, it is so um, commanding of our attention that other things slip away. And so the law of digital recency is this idea that, that um, both Emery in her new role as a courier, and then also in terms of the people that she's being put up against at, at various points in the story is this idea that things can be operating in plain sight, but because everyone has an implant, they're not seeing it for what it is. Um, and so I kind of, exactly. So I'm kind of playing with that tension there. And the whole idea for this kind of came out of my background. Um, I, I am a social scientist by training. Um, I uh, have a master's degree and then also worked for a university for a number of years. And so one of the science social science methods is is uh, survey questions. Um, and, you know, we are drowning in survey questions right now. But, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, there, there's actually quite a lot of science associated with what makes for a good survey question. And one of those things is um, looking at recency effects in terms of how the order of questions can affect different outcomes. Um, and so that's where the law of digital recency comes from, is the idea that a, 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 a survey question can prime a respondent to answer differently the, set, the subsequent question. Whereas in the book, it's the idea that the digital environment can prime a person to respond differently in the real world. Yeah, it's probably getting to the point where we're almost, we have this idea that computers are infallible and that our own memories are tricky, but if we look something up on the internet, it's probably right. But actually, that data is changing all the time. And Right. I mean, a perfect example is a, a Wikipedia article, you know, that's under heavy, heavy revision. <laughs> You know, it might say one something one day and might say something else another day. And who actually reads those footnotes? I mean, let's be real. <laughs> no, it is time for that. Well, getting back to M and Rick's relationship, they have a real struggle to trust each other when they meet again. And it's complicated when M's implant goes offline. Does this continue to make their relationship more difficult or are there some benefits? Um. I think yes and no. In the short term, yes, it makes things more difficult because they can't simply pick up where they left off and um, where they can explain everything or they can feel the sincerity of each other's emotions where all is forgiven. That is not possible for them because they that, that connection between them has been broken. Um, and so over the course of the book, you know, you kind of see them kind of trying to relearn how to interact with one another because they don't have um, the the implant connection to kind of fall back on. So um, they're they're at kind of square one, except because they met they met um, online, so they never really knew each other in person until um, later on in the book. And so now they're like they're, it's like they just met each other for the first time. So it's, I was kind of playing with communication styles and um, how things change when you're uh, having to deal with somebody in person versus only online. 
or online in addition to being in person. And, um, you know, it was kind of fun to kind of play with when their implants were working, when they weren't, or at what level of permissions they had to interact with um, over the course of them getting to know each other and, you know, presumably um, finding a way to be together again. Well, what I noticed was that M was starting to watch Rick to try to read his body language and look at his eyes. And so that was really different because she had only met him once physically before. So she was depending on a different set of tools to interpret his behavior, the tools that we used to use. Right. And she's a little rusty at it because she hasn't had to do that ever. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Anne was recruited as a career for Aventine because she had a rare HLA type that enabled her to carry encrypted data in her bloodstream. I thought you explained that pretty well. And can you explain for our listeners what hemocryption is and how you came up with that idea? Uh, sure. So basically, um, because everyone has an implant in this environment and because there's so much reliance on digital infrastructure, um, I basically, you know, kind of assumed that security would be a nightmare, um, especially since it's in this um, constrained environment. There's no real way to kind of change. It's hard to, to update things. It's hard to change things. Um, and so they're relying on, in a lot of cases, you know, just old technology. So that means there's a lot of security concerns and possibilities for incursions. So um, the whole reason why there's careers in this in this society is because nobody, I mean, everyone uses the network, but nobody really trusts it um, for things that really matter. So for certain businesses and governments, uh, depending on what they're doing, you know, it, it they would much rather have a more secure way of transferring information. So that's where couriers like Emery come in. And she's not just like, you know, ferrying, you know, data sticks because, or, you know, some sort of um, card or bride or anything like that, because that can be stolen, that could be corrupted, you know, that, that's not, that's also not secure. So um, the company she works for has developed this proprietary process um, where they take people blood cells and uh, depending on the HLA type um, encode um, the data rightly right into their DNA and then the blood cells you know travel through their body and then you know they you know outwardly you know it doesn't look like they're any different from anybody else and then they go to the place where they're supposed to make the data drop and then they essentially go through dialysis as those encoded cells are then pulled out of their body. Um, and then, you know, re, um, the word is gone, but <laughs> the, uh, but then like, you know, then they, uh, are able to kind of download the information and, and you know, reinterpret it. And it's like, as if it's, you know, the way it should be. So, um, the hemocryption idea, you know, that was the one I've been kicking around for a while in terms of like the, all the steps. Um, that it takes, um, I kind of, I didn't cheat, but I did pull in some expert help. Um, there's a woman in my, my writing group named Kelly Lagore, who is a biologist by training. And so she really helped me kind of be a little more precise in, um, some of the details, like the, the HLA type. That's something I, I wouldn't have even known to, um, 
kind of look at. But basically, there are different kinds of um, people with different kinds of blood cells. And so the, the protein encoding is really the issue here. And so <clears throat> when one of the fail-safes that Aventine has is basically people have a allergic reaction to the encoded data if they don't drop it off in time. And this is just a way to kind of ensure that the couriers have an incentive to drop off their data in a timely manner. And so um, to, to make that happen, you know, you need to be able to kind of identify a very unique population. Uh, and the HLA type is one way of segmenting out other people. So that's why that it, she's targeted for her blood because she has that trait. Yeah, I was impressed. I was impressed that you knew about HLA because I have a background in biology. So HLA is pretty important. It determines um, tissue matching for transplants, and it also predisposes people to certain types of genetic diseases, but it's just not something that's familiar to people outside of the biological community. It's like, oh, I don't know where Lauren came up with that, but that's a pretty ingenious idea. Well, yeah, so, uh, like, I, I, it's not all mine. Like, I, I knew, like, I want what I wanted to be able to, to do with this particular um, setup, and um, Kelly really helped me kind of identify that kind of stuff to kind of make it actually something we could actually do. So, Yeah, she turned M into a data vampire, I believe is how M puts it at yeah. that point. <laughs> yeah. well, what are you working on these days, Lauren? Well, you know, I'm kind of, you know, in a kind of in a space where, you know, the book has come out. I've been promoting and I'm just kind of back working on a brand new project. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm sorry, but I don't like to talk about works in progress, but, uh, basically it's, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I requires a lot of research. So I've haven't been moving through it as quickly as I'd like, but, um, I always have a couple of other things in the works. Um, so, Are you writing in the uh, same genre or do you prefer to keep that under wraps as well? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's a different, it's a different genre. It's, um, I would say it's, uh, contemporary fantasy. So that's a little bit different. Okay. Um, so you're staying in a broad category, but you're switching the perspective a little bit. Well, we'll look yeah. forward to seeing what that's about. And uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Great. Okay. Bye-bye, Lauren. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Lauren C. Tafoe. When she was younger, she poked around in the back of wardrobes, tried to walk through mirrors, and always kept an eye out for secret passages, fairy rings, and messages from aliens. Now she writes to cope with her ordinary existence. Besides the obligatory bachelor degree in English, she also holds a master's degree in mass communication and spent a few years toiling as a researcher in academia. Her short fiction can be found in a variety of speculative fiction magazines and anthologies. Implanted from Angry Robot Books is her first novel. To learn more about her, please visit laurencetafoe.com and her last name is spelled T-E-F-F-E-A-U I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. 
author of the historical fantasy falcon series and the upcoming girl of fire you can visit me on my website or you can follow me on twitter at gabrielle author thanks for joining us we'll talk to you next time